0: You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Cokie Roberts. This program originally aired in 2008. This archived audio is clipped at the beginning. We apologize. ...book about the founding era... Starting before the revolution and going to the end of the era, the voters are very handy in telling us when that was because they literally elected the next generation, John Quincy Adams, so end of era, thank you. But that book was getting to be way too big a book, and I would have never made the deadline. So I ended it with the election of John Adams, which was the first contested election under the new constitution. And the losers accepted the verdict, which was a big deal. I mean, that you know meant the American experiment would continue, and it's still a big deal. I mean, you look around the world today, and it's still an issue. Uh, it could be in this primary campaign, but the um, but so that was a logical place to stop. And then I picked up the story for this book from Adams to Adams. So it goes from the inauguration of John Adams in 1797 to the inauguration of John Quincy Adams. In 1825 and one of the nice things about dividing it in two is that I started to get much more material because people started to understand that I really had you know interesting things to say about these women and they started digging them out of their vaults where they've been hiding for hundreds of years and not touched and not transcribed and all of that and so I was able to really write this book almost entirely in the words of the women so that they can come to you over the centuries. With the exception of maybe five quotations in this book, every single one is written either by a woman, to a woman, or about a woman, which is very unusual in a history book. And they're so much fun because they're feisty and funny and brave, and of course, they give you a much more complete view of the men we consider the founding fathers than the men's letters do, because those letters you know, are just fraught with history. They knew that they were doing something extraordinary, and, and they knew their letters would be preserved and published. And so they're very serious, downright pompous, in fact. And of course, the women do not see the men in such a serious light. Um, and so their letters are much more three-dimensional about them. And also the men's letters to the women are much more frank and funny and filled with fear and love and all, you know, the human emotions, and also sort of interesting predicaments that I think they would not write uh, to another man. For instance, when John Marshall, the great jurist, went riding the circuit, I think it was only to his wife that he would have written that he found himself in Raleigh, North Carolina, without any britches. He says... I immediately set out to get a pair made. I thought I should be a sans-culottes only one day, <laughs> but the tailors were all busy. So he says, I have the extreme mortification to pass the whole term without that important article of dress I have mentioned. Now conjure up a mental image of this, you know? I mean, what was he wearing? Just his robe covering him? You know? I can't look at pictures of him anymore. It's just... It's just too funny. But as I say, we start all of these wonderful tales told by the women uh, with Adams presidency. And of course, with the indomitable Abigail Adams as first lady. Abigail, very interestingly, and this is something I have seen in pretty much every White House I have ever known about. And I've known or covered them certainly from Johnson on, the minute she became First Lady, after decades of being a wonderful political analyst and being the eyes and ears for John Adams on the political scene and giving him wonderful political advice because he had a total tenure politically, she becomes First Lady and she loses all of her political instincts. And I see that happening so often. Often, because the White House develops this bunker mentality, you know, we're in here doing the good, the true, and the just, and you're out there taking shots at us, and why don't you understand uh, how much we're trying to work for the common good? And that happened to her in the first White House where there was real opposition and uh, or the first executive mansion now of course the opposition was led by the vice president which was a little dicey and uh, the press was virulent i mean we are such milquetoast in comparison even the worst of the blogosphere is milquetoast in comparison to this period so she became an ardent supporter of the alien and sedition acts which of course was terrible political advice to her husband and went a long way toward doing him in after one term. But the thing that really did him in after one term was Alexander Hamilton, and she had very good instincts about him. She did not trust him one whit. She had never trusted him, but her lack of trust was completely vindicated, in her view, when um, he was Secretary of the Treasury, and he had to go public admitting that uh, he had had an affair. The reason he had had to go public was because he was being blackmailed, and it was charged that he was being blackmailed because he had illegally traded in government securities, and so he had to go and say, "No, that's not true. I'm being blackmailed because I had an affair with the blackmailer's wife," you know, and he says, "I say this not without a blush," you know, and and Eliza Hamilton serving as the first of the women we have seen way too many of recently, standing behind her husband, you know, probably wearing pearls, and... um, (laughs) Actually, I was telling that story the other day, and a woman sent me a note that said, pearls behind swine. (laughs) Isn't that great? (laughs) But she saved his political career. She had helped make his political career in the first place because he was brilliant, but he was an illegitimate product of the West Indies, and she was a Schuyler, Anna Van Rensselaer, you know, two of the grand families of New York then. And then when she stood by him after this, uh, she did save his career, and um, uh, he went on to other things, including getting rid of John Adams as president. So Thomas Jefferson then takes over... While Jefferson was president, of course, he had no wife, and occasionally Dolly Madison would entertain for him at the White House, but really what she had was a whole separate power base at her house on F Street with her husband, a secretary of state, and she used that house and her entertainments there for political purposes. And what really amazed me in this period, in the first book, what amazed me was how deeply political the women were and how fervently patriotic they were and how committed to the cause of American independence they were. Even though, as Abigail Adams wrote, "You know, we won't get anything out of it. We're making all the sacrifices and suffering all the hardships. And if we win, you men will be held in high esteem and we won't even be able to vote. So we're better patriots than you are. And Adams had sense enough not to argue with her. Uh, but, um, but in this period, not only are the women incredibly political and openly political, having no political rights and no legal rights. The married women could not own the jewelry on their bodies. But the men recognized them as such and gave them credit, which I did find very interesting and surprising. And so when Madison ran for a second term for president, I mean, first term for president in in 1808, it was the end of Jefferson's second term. and, And Jefferson had been very popular. He had been, of course, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, and he was a man with a great deal of charisma. But his popularity was wildly enhanced by um, the Louisiana Purchase. But by the end of that second term, he had stopped paying much attention and uh, really was heading home to Monticello. And the country was in a bad mood because um, there was war between England and France going on. They were interfering with neutral shipping. So the president and Madison had convinced Congress to pass an embargo act, and everybody hated it. The farmers hated it because they couldn't export anything. The merchants hated it because they couldn't import anything. Of course, the seamen in this area despised it. And so Madison wasn't very popular, and his opponent was Charles Coatsworth Pinckney, who was a very prominent Federalist from South Carolina. And at the end of the election, after Madison won, Pinckney wrote, I was beaten by Mr. and Mrs. Madison. I might have had a better chance if I had faced Mr. Madison alone. Which you know, I thought was quite interesting for a man to admit. And then the first term, uh, Madison becomes no more popular. And by the time he runs the second time, uh, the War of 1812, has been declared, and it's a wildly unpopular war, Mr. Madison's War. New England is talking about seceding, and there's a breakaway faction in Madison's own party, of the Republican Party, uh, that nominates DeWitt Clinton, the governor of New York. The Federalists decide, well, that's a good idea. We'll back him as well. That's our best shot at winning. And uh, Clinton does very well in the popular vote, and Madison wins by the Electoral College vote. And later in the century, James G. Blaine, in writing a history of it, says Mrs. Madison saved the administration of her husband. But for her, DeWitt Clinton would have been chosen president in 1812. So that's fairly unequivocal. She was a political being and was recognized as such. In all kinds of letters, you find this. She would bring people together and make them sit down and and make a deal Uh, at times when the partisanship was so fierce that the country was really in danger of falling apart. And then, of course, when the British invaded Washington, she became a national heroine for her saving the government papers and the portrait of George Washington so the British couldn't desecrate it. And um, when they did burned the Capitol and marched to the White House. They got there and finding no portrait of Washington to steal and desecrate what they stole was a portrait of Dolly Madison and did despicable guy things. And um, she, they, But they also sat down and ate her meal. She had prepared a meal for the, uh, it was like, you know, Goldilocks. Uh, she pre- <laughs> Prepared a meal for the president and the cabinet and his generals because she expected them back before she was forced to flee. So they sat down and had her meal and they wrote letters about it. They felt slightly guilty, but not all that guilty. Well, after the War of 1812, Dolly Madison did what women had been doing all around the country, which was establishing uh, benevolent institutions to take care of those in need. And what she did in Washington was an orphan's asylum after the burning of the city and the explosions at the Navy Yard had left a lot of children as orphans. And she worked with the local women of Washington to do that, starting that tradition which I saw when I was growing up. But you see women having done this from Boston down through the uh, states, and those women are all here too, the women who are educators and social reformers and writers who are trying to make the society a better place. Because it was a very uh, exciting and exuberant time in our history. Countries moving west, and uh, there was a tremendous sense of confidence after the War of 1812. And, you know, there's just this unbridled capitalism with people making it. And the women were all saying, that's great, but there are people being left out. So they did these very political things of establishing um, these benevolent societies, widows' societies, fuel societies, orphanages, which required them going to the state legislature, incorporating, even because they couldn't own the property. They had to have a corporation to own the property. And they always made an unmarried lady treasurer so that nobody's husband could seize their assets. And then they'd have to lobby the legislature for funds and all of that. And their letters about it are all really interesting. And self-help societies by African Americans, free blacks, all of that is happening in this period of time. And the beginnings of the great social movements. So Lucretia Mott, in 1821, uh, went as a Quaker preacher to Philadelphia. And the Quakers allowed women to preach publicly. And her religion led her to abolition, and she became a great preacher against slavery. And she went to abolitionist meetings and was shut out of them. Was not allowed to participate in some, was not allowed to speak in some, was not allowed to vote in any. And that led her directly to suffrage. And of course she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who she met at an abolitionist meeting in England, then of course go to Seneca Falls and write the Declaration of Rights. All of the big social movements that changed the shape of the country start in this time with these women, many of whom, thankfully, wrote about it and left us their letters. As I say, after the War of 1812, the orphan asylum was established in Washington, and it became somewhat de rigueur for the prominent political women to serve on the Board of Trustees. And this is what's really wonderful about doing this kind of research. I was reading Louisa Catherine Adams, John Quincy Adams' wife's letters, most of which have never been published. And what would happen is the Massachusetts Historical Society, which is a fabulous institution, uh, would dig these things out and send them to me. And I'd be so excited, these great huge packets would show up. And then there'd be Xeroxed copies of 18th century handwriting. Uh, which I can show you some of later, it is really impossible to read. But, you know, so you're sitting there working away at it, but then you come up with these tidbits that you just can't believe how wonderful they are. And this was the case with one where the year of the Missouri Compromise, 1820, the Congress had stayed in session so long that um, nobody knew how to deal with it because normally they adjourned in um, March and they had stayed there till June. And they were beginning to run out of food because the suppliers weren't used to that many people being in Washington that long. And it was getting hot and malaria was threatening and all of that. Finally, they adjourn in June. And she goes to a meeting. Uh, She's the wife of the Secretary of State at this point. Her husband's running for president. And she goes to a meeting of the trustees of the orphan asylum. And one of the trustees tells her that they're going to need a new building next year. And she says, Why? And uh, the answer was, Well, Congress having left many females in such difficulties as to make it probable they would beg our assistance. And she says, What are you talking about? And the woman says, The session had been very long. The fathers of the nation had left. Forty cases to be provided for by the public, and our institution was the most likely to be called upon to maintain this illicit progeny. Forty pregnant women! (laughs) And off they go, home to their wives, and Louisa is writing these letters to old John Adams. Uh, Abigail is dead by this time, and she's trying to amuse him. So she says... I recommended a petition to Congress next session for that great and moral body to establish a foundling institution and should certainly move that the two additional dollars a day which they have given themselves as an increase in pay may be appropriated as a fund to the support of the institution. Now, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, that is just too fabulous you have not seen that published in other books um and i brought it to steve and said you know does this say what i think it says and he says oh yeah no well as i say john quincy adams was running for president along with everybody else in the world um it was an election very much like this one as this time we have for the first time since uh, 1952 Uh, neither a sitting president nor a sitting vice president on the ballot. In 1824, they knew it would be the first time in American history that they did not have a founder on the ballot, someone who had either written the Declaration of Independence, uh, fought in the Revolutionary War, or written the Constitution. And they were very well aware of that, even as Monroe was elected the first time in 1816. They called him the last of the cocked hats. And they started nominating people for the 1824 election in 1818. So you think this election's long. (laughs) So then Monroe's re-elected in 1820. And Sarah Gail Seton, the wife of a newspaper man in Washington, says to her parents, the present incumbent is treated with very little ceremony while casting about for his successor. Sounds familiar. And she jokes that, that um, people are saying that a committee should be appointed to wait on the president and ask him to have the goodness to resign inasmuch as gentlemen were in a hurry and did not like to wait. Well, he served out his term with incredible amounts of politicking going on because all of the candidates ended up in Washington. Andrew Jackson, John Quincy Adams, uh, William Crawford of Georgia, John Calhoun of South Carolina, Henry Clay of Kentucky. They were all either in the cabinet or the Senate or the House. And the campaigning was furious, and it was all calling on each other and calling on wives and having these endless entertainments uh, that Louisa Catherine Adams was an expert at. And she referred to it as my campaign and uh, talked about my vocation, meaning getting her husband elected president. She knew exactly what she had to do and she went about it in a very systemized fashion and just wooed the members of Congress which turned out to be a very wise thing because the election went to the House of Representatives. Jackson having won the popular vote, the plurality of the Electoral College vote, but not the majority. Uh, Calhoun had dropped out earlier. He, He realized he didn't have the votes. Henry Clay drops out at this point because he's the fourth man. So the House of Representatives is choosing among Jackson, Adams, and Crawford. And Clay throws his support to Adams in what some have considered a corrupt bargain, because Clay became Secretary of State. But even so, even with Clay's support, as the House of Representatives met to choose the president, nobody had the votes. And Crawford's forces were hopeful that Jackson and Adams would deadlock over several ballots in the way that Jefferson and Burr had, and that then the partisans of each would go to Crawford as the compromise candidate. And uh, this, you know, of course, had been just unbelievable politicking going on in Washington as the House of Representatives is about to meet. And uh, they go in, and much to everyone's amazement, John Quincy Adams is chosen on the first ballot. And one of the uh, key votes is Stephen Van Rensselaer of New York. Uh, who had promised his boarding house mates uh, that he would go for Crawford. And they all the boarding houses all voted together. Uh, but then he broke that promise, and there are wonderful descriptions of him being lobbied on the floor, uh, written by the women who were in the gallery. And um, he cast his vote for Adams, and his messmates are furious with him. And one of them says, oh, it's because of his wife. Uh, he does everything she tells him. And she was a Schuyler. She was Eliza Hamilton's sister. But uh, I think it was at least as much because of Louisa Catherine Adams, who had uh, wined and dined these men for years by this time. And uh, they, they knew her, they knew Adams, they knew him as the safer choice and he became president. But no matter who would have become president in that election, it was the end of the era. As I say, none of those men was a founder. And um, Abigail Adams had understood that this moment would come. She knew that the people who had created the country would have to hand it off to the next generation. And so as she was leaving public office, uh, she... Uh, essentially wrote a benediction to the generations to come, saying, I leave to time the unfolding of a drama. I leave to posterity to reflect upon the times past, and I leave them characters to contemplate. These are wonderful characters to contemplate. I know you will love getting to know them. Thank you for letting me share them with you tonight. Thank you very much.
1: NPR's Cokie Roberts' latest book is called Ladies of Liberty. Coming up after a break, I join her on stage with a few of my own questions and some insight from our live audience. I'm Laura Kanoi. You're listening to The Exchange on NHPR. ladies who know how to handle a microphone right here. <laughs> Koki. lots to talk about, and it's well, wonderful to see you. It's so
0: good to see you there.
1: Well, as you mentioned, uh, this book for you is a personal endeavor as well as a professional endeavor, and you sprinkle that throughout the book. Give us uh, those times, Cokie, when you were working on the book, reading through those letters, and just nodding your head and going, been there, done that,
0: <laughs> as a member of a political family yourself. Well, I think one of the most striking ones to me was the question of where to live. And that's something I still hear all the time from congressional families. There's no right place to live. Um, You know, if they live in the district, the member of Congress is away all week and the kids aren't having any of the advantages of being a congressional child, learning about the history in the Congress. If they live in Washington, the member of Congress is away every weekend and is not at any of the kids' events and all that. And and that was true from the beginning. And um, the letters where you see it the most are, are Louisa Catherine Adams' letters, where she goes to Washington with John Quincy Adams when he's in the Senate. And then he tells her, you know, we're going to have to spend six months apart every year. And so she chooses to stay in Washington when he goes to Boston for the summer. And he is furious. And uh, her family's in Washington. She figures she's better off in Washington. So he makes her come the next year to Boston. And then when she goes back to Washington with him, he and her mother-in-law, Abigail, prevail upon her, uh, much against her wishes, to um, leave her children in Boston. And they were tiny children. But Abigail says it's, you know, taking children in a stagecoach to Washington is totally unacceptable and living in some terrible boarding house there, they're much better off here. And um, Louise is saying, I think they're better off with their mother, but um, she lost. Um, but she's very clear in her letters about how impossible it is to figure out where to live. And you could relate to that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. When we were growing up, we went to school half year in each place for a while, which was great. You know, by the time they caught on to you, we were gone. But, um, <laughs> we loved it. But it was deemed not good for our education at some point. So we started going to school year round in Washington and uh, spent our summers and Christmas in New Orleans. And that did mean that we were often away from our father. And some of these separations that these families put up with years, were years. Years. Years, yes. Um, uh, and Abigail Adams, of course, if you've seen the series, I mean, when he was gone in on diplomatic missions, she didn't see him for many years at a time. But even later, it was mainly the people who went off to Europe who didn't see their families for years at a time. But even those who went to Washington didn't see them for many months at a time.
1: Broadly, Koki, what do you hope people take away from this book? You know, your average American, how do you hope to broaden his or her understanding of the founding days of this well, nation? Well, first
0: of all, it's just fun. You know, this is a fun book to read because these are delightful people and we're reading their mail and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I I mean, you know, I am basically of the view that history textbook writers should be taken out and shot. And um, because they managed to squeeze all the juice out of it and, and bore children about history, which is really hard to do uh, because history is so interesting. It's stories, it's gossip. And so I think that that's the first thing I want is for people to just to understand how interesting it is. But what I also very much want is for everyone, but particularly girls, to see how absolutely essential to the creation of the country and the survival of the country and the enhancement of the country these women were so that they have a sense of being out of a strong tradition. And then, with any luck, we'll uh, have an incentive to be active citizens uh, who are engaging in civic life.
1: Well, there is a lot of juice in here. I mean, oh, yeah. just <laughs> going through it, you know, you go,
0: whoa! I mean,
1: just an example. Um, Louisa Addison Adams describes President Jefferson, and he's so revered, and all those marble busts and so forth. But Louisa said his person was ungainly, ugly, and common. Uh, his manner was awkward and excessively inelegant. I mean, she's just. Yeah,
0: well, he had defeated her father-in-law and fired her (laughs) father, so she had no love for him. But uh, yes, but then she goes on to talk about how he's you know fixes on you and stuff. So, but she she absolutely she calls it as she sees it. And Mercy Otis Warren, who plays a big role in founding mothers because she was one of the great propagandists of the revolution, but in this book, uh, she writes the history of the revolution. And the men hated it, particularly John Adams, who went just completely nuts writing to her. I mean, really, these letters are unbalanced. And um, one of the reasons that the men didn't like the history was because she did just say what she thought. So Francis Dana, who had been ambassador to Russia, she said, you know, he just wasn't up to the job. And he was still living in Boston at the time, you know. So I do think that they were a lot franker.
1: You mentioned the Founding Mothers, again, the first book right. leading up to this book, Ladies of Liberty, Koki, and how are the women in this Ladies of Liberty book different from the Founding Mothers? I mean, obviously, there's some similarities, but they are different from that revolutionary generation in terms of the challenges they face, in terms of the role that they play.
0: Yes, well, many of them are the same women. I mean, it's just a different time in their lives. But the revolutionary period was obviously unique, and it was dramatic, you know, it was the only time you'd be writing a declaration of independence and fighting a war of independence and then trying to craft some document that would hold together this country that really didn't want to be held together. And uh, so that was a very dramatic time. And the women... Uh, as I said earlier, were called upon to make incredible sacrifices. Uh, starting before the revolution, they were called upon to be politically active in enforcing the boycotts. And then during the war, many of them were in danger. Many of them were were taken, some were taken prisoners, some were held hostage. Um, some, like Abigail Adams, was you know alone on the farm with the British right there. So you had examples of, absolutely remarkable bravery and courage. In this period of time, it's much less dramatic, but in some ways, uh, much more uh, dangerous, because uh, the rabid regionalism and the fierce partisanship uh, threatened to tear the country apart at any time. And so they were there trying to knit it together and and make the men sit down together and have a glass of Madeira and behave. And, um, <laughs> and they were always thinking about the country and trying to find ways to make it a more perfect union. Well, and besides
1: educating me about these women, I also forgot, really, you know, because it gets glossed over this right. period, how very real the threat of war was all the time. I mean, you say it really was a second war of independence at this time. Well, the War of
0: 1812 really did turn out to be that. Um, I'm not sure that everybody thought of it. They certainly didn't all think of it that way at the time because, as I said earlier, it was very unpopular, and there was a talk of New England seceding, Really what happened was the British overreached um, by burning Washington. And uh, people started to rally round because they were horrified. And I have Louisa Catherine Adams. Uh, John Quincy Adams was ambassador to Russia. And uh, he then went to Ghent to negotiate the treaty to end the War of 1812. And he was there for months, 11 months. And so there's a whole set of unpublished letters between him and Louisa back in Russia. And she writes, uh, after she learns of the burning of Washington, how everybody treats her as if her country is gone and uh, how awful it is. And so you really get a sense of, of how people were not sure that the country was going to survive. Then the British have all these reinforcements because Napoleon's been defeated in Russia and they go to attack New Orleans and uh, they assume that the French citizens of New Orleans are not particularly interested in defending America and they assume wrong and uh, part of the reason for that was because of the burning of Washington and everybody rallied around Jackson and defeated the British you know, wiped them out, and those, the burning of Washington, the great victory at New Orleans, and then the Treaty of Ghent, made the country feel confident and cohesive in a way that it really hadn't before, and they came to think of it as a second war of independence.
1: I have some great questions from our audience, Cokie. Um, do any of these women remind you of your mother?
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The one who reminds me most of my mother is Dolly Madison, because Dolly Madison, as I say, was always kind of doing things to make things better, for, not only for the country, but you know for promoting her husband, but doing it in the most charming way. And everybody loved her. I mean, Henry Clay said to her at one point, everybody loves Mrs. Madison. And she said, that's because Mrs. Madison loves everybody. Now, <laughs> it wasn't easy for Mrs. Madison to love everybody. These campaigns were so filthy that she was charged with being Uh, overly sexed and unsexing her husband, who had no children. And crazy old John Randolph was threatening to go to the Senate with the evidence of all of her infidelities, Thomas Jefferson was said to have pimped her and her sisters in exchange for votes in Congress I mean this was nasty horrible stuff and she just rode over it you know and sailed on with her feathers on her turbans and um, and everybody loved her and my mother is pretty much that way I mean there, um, there was no no accusations against my mother but, um, but and in fact after Madison died later after this ends later in the century. She came back to Washington, and she was poverty-stricken, but she still carried on. And Daniel Webster wrote, Dolly Madison is the only permanent power in Washington. All the rest of us are transitory.
1: I want to ask you about the other women, the unfirst 1st ladies. Right? Uh, they come from a lot of backgrounds. I mean, lots of diplomats, wives, first ladies, and, and so forth. But you know, you've know, you got Lewis and Clark's Indian guide, Sacagawea, in this book, and a nun who did a lot for public education, and a famous black woman writer in order from here in New England, from Vermont. What sort of threads of commonality can you draw, Cokie, among these very different women, if any? You know, the first ladies to Sacagawea to? Well,
0: Sacagawea is here because the Lewis and Clark expedition was such an important expedition for the, uh, for the future of the country. And it turns out that she was essential to the expedition. And all I know about her, I know from Lewis and Clark's journals. So it was wonderful to see the evolution through their journals of their attitudes toward this 16-year-old girl who had a baby right before they left on this arduous trek across the country and at first they don't think much of her in one way or the other, and then they like the fact that she's able to find some roots for them to eat, some interesting food for them to eat, and then they start seeing how really tough she is and and useful she is, and then they realize that they absolutely have to have her as someone who can negotiate with the Shoshone Indians because they have to get Shoshone horses, and they write about that, and then they get to the Shoshones, and there's this dramatic moment where the chief turns out to be her long lost brother, because she had been captured by the Hidatsu, and then she keeps going on with them, and I have no notion whether that was her choice or not, but she does. And they realize that uh, her presence is very useful because the other tribes see them as peaceful because they have a woman with them. And several of the other tribes have also captured Shoshone women and so she can do important interpretation. But then, again, as they get to know her better and trust her more, they start to rely on her more and more uh, for directions and guidance. And they, by the end, they are very admiring of her and say so.
1: Who else, Cokie, outside the Beltway, captured (laughs) your imagination?
0: The story of Elizabeth Ann Seton is quite a story. Uh, She was a wealthy Protestant woman in New York whose father had been a surgeon for the British, and then uh, when... The Americans won. He became the first public health officer in New York. And uh, her husband was a wealthy merchant. And she married young and happy and had five kids right away. And then her husband lost his business, and then he lost his health. And they went to Italy to try to regain his health. And he died soon after they got there. So she's 29 years old with five little children and no income. And she went into some church in Italy and had some sort of epiphany and went back to New York and became a Catholic, although that's all very funny. Everybody was competing for Elizabeth's soul. I mean, the Anabaptists, the Methodists, the Episcopalians, the Catholics, they were all over But she became a Catholic, and uh, there was discrimination against Catholics, and so her attempt to uh, run a school to survive... um, did not meet with success because people wouldn't send their children to her. Maryland had been established as a Catholic colony. She was invited to come to Maryland to um, open a school, which she did, and eventually other women joined her and she established a religious order. Although she said, my first duty is as a mother, the rest of this comes second. And then she moved out to Emmitsburg and started a free school For poor children and supported it with a boarding school. But she kept building on these schools and is credited with essentially establishing the parochial school system in the United States. And I love the way history books say that, you know. And then she established the parochial school system in the United (laughs) States. There was no effort involved. Then, of course, she became the first American saint. But, you know, her story is one of Tremendous hardship and, and difficulty, but also creativity and ability to do something, you know, of long-lasting importance. I guess another one that who's just there because you wouldn't want to miss her is uh, Betsy Bonaparte, who was this great beauty from Baltimore, and uh, she was determined. She called herself ambitious. That was another thing. Several of these women described their ambition, which I found Really interesting, because we don't do that today. You know, we think that's a bad word for a woman today, as we've seen lately. And um, uh, she was ambitious not to just be the daughter of a merchant from Baltimore. And lucky for her, Napoleon's youngest baby near do well brother, Jerome, came wandering through America. And so she married him. And nobody wanted her to marry him. The French didn't want her to marry him. Her parents really didn't want her to marry him. But her father was smart enough to put together a prenup and, um, (laughs) no, seriously, and to have the Bishop of Baltimore, John Carroll, marry them so it would be recognized in the eyes of the church so Napoleon would have a hard time dealing with it. But even with the bishop marrying them, one of the guests wrote, the bride wore clothes that would fit in my pocket. And she did this all the time. She would show up at the White House in some gauze dress that she had dampened so it would cling to her, and uh, she had nothing on underneath, you know. Um, so she was written about a lot, and, um, and she was a great beauty. Uh, so her story, her story goes on, and it's, it comes up several times in the book. She's a great character.
1: Well, and there are too many other unknown women <laughs> right. that you could talk about. Uh, here's another one from our audience. What do you think the founding mothers, or the ladies of liberty in this case, would think of the women's role in politics today?
0: I think they would wonder why it had taken so long. Um, uh, I mean, when you see how very political they were, I think that they would have just thought it was the most natural thing on earth uh, for women to be political, and that as you know, they, you move towards women's political rights, that you would move to women um, in political office. I mean, I just think that would have been their reaction. There are women in the book who are writing about the need for women to gain political rights. There are what we would call feminist writers. But for the women who were actually doing the politics, they never really talked about it much except to make cracks. And they do make cracks that are just like cracks we would make, you know. So Louise Adams says at one point, he keeps telling me the Constitution doesn't allow me to do this, and then he wants me to do it, you know. <laughs> um, so... <laughs>
1: Since this is a writer's series, and there are lots of writers and aspiring writers in our audience, I have a couple questions just about the writing process, Koki and how you approached it. First of all, the research, and you touched on this. Sometimes with some women, a gold mine. Right. Other times, though, you come up totally dry.
0: Well, and for people you come up totally dry with, unless they're First Lady, you just don't treat with them, because it's their words that make the book come alive, Now, you have to, because it is a chronological history, you have to deal with every First Lady. In Jefferson's case, his daughters, he does have correspondence with his daughters. And um, in um, Monroe's case, even though we don't have Elizabeth Monroe's uh, writings, we have a lot of writings, grousing letters about her. Uh, So you're able to piece together a picture of them. But for the other women, I only wrote about the ones who I could get at them. And this
1: this process of burning letters, a couple oh, people, uh, I Martha I could kill them if they letters. weren't dead.
0: I mean, <laughs> I mean, Martha Washington burned all of her correspondence with George, and Thomas Jefferson burned all his correspondence with his wife, Martha, saying that he was too heartbroken to keep it, which I don't think one does when one is heartbroken, but it's his story, and he's sticking to it. Um, <laughs> I do deal with Sally Hemings, Again, of course, I don't know what Sally Hemings thought. I don't have anything she wrote. But there's reason enough because of the stories at the time. I mean, there were newspaper stories in 1802 about Sally Hemings, and she was part of the political picture. So I do deal with her. But again, I don't know what she thought. What's your
1: own writing process, Koki? We've talked to others in this. Oh, it's uh, so
0: embarrassing to tell you.
1: <laughs> Some authors get up religiously at you know X hour and write religiously for X number of hours. Other authors seem to sprinkle it in wherever they can. What's your process?
0: I have a couple of other jobs, uh, and um, and I have you know an, a very active family life, so I can't stop my life to write a book. What tends to happen is I will write it in spurts and then I'll be up against deadline and I'll write and write and write and write and write and write and write. write. Um, This book, I hit the send button on February 11th. It was in the stores April 8th. And I know exactly when it was because it was my husband's 65th birthday. And I hit the button at five o'clock, and at 630, 25 people walked in for dinner. <laughs> um, fortunately, they were all related. So I, you know, I sort of do it in snatches until I have to do it. Then I do get up at four thirty in the morning and just go. You know, I always stop at six thirty. I write in my basement, which is the grandkids' playroom, because it's the only place I can be messy enough. Because I'm spread it out all over, and I don't want that anyplace else in the house. It's normally fine. They moved in for nine months in the middle of this book, uh, but um, but the day that I discovered this Louisa Catherine Adams uh, orphan asylum letter, it was just at about six thirty, and I always go upstairs at six thirty and have a glass of wine, turn on the news, and start cooking dinner. I brought it up to say to Steve, "Huh?" <laughs> and he said, <laughs> "He said you got it." <laughs>
1: Well, and you mentioned your other jobs. Contrast your work as a day-to-day journalist. You're always on deadline. In broadcast journalism, we're always being told, cut it short, cut it short, cut it short. With this, you had to cut it short, but not really. I mean, how, well, yes, how so was that for you?
0: Well, I mean, you know, in writing Founding Mothers, the first thing that I discovered is the cultural disconnection between a daily broadcast journalist and a curator at an historical society is really large. And um, uh, there was one society who shall remain nameless, where I called and said, "You have the papers of X. Do you have the papers of his wife?" Well, we don't know. We're still transcribing his papers. It's been two hundred years. <laughs> you know, that doesn't seem to phase them. Um, so. So that was the first you know problem. Um, but in terms of actual the writing, I didn't really find it an issue of writing long versus writing short. It was just what's hard about these books is shaping them because they're kind of all over the place, and sort of making the outline work is very difficult. But I'll tell you something. Radio is a really good preparation for that, because you know how in radio you want to mix up the blocks of written material that we call tracks, and the bits of tape that we call acts, and the same thing was actually true here. I wanted to tell the narrative, but then have individuals pop up in different places, and that was an organizational challenge, but radio experience was good for it.
1: I want to close out with a couple questions from our audience are you working on a new book if so what is the subject and how is it going
0: (laughs) well I just had triplets and I'm not getting pregnant (laughs) 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 but I do have contracts to do children's books on both of these books so I will do children's books on founding mothers and ladies of liberty so that will be great
1: speaking of children Coke you gave me a Perfect segue into our last question. This is from an 11 year old who's in our audience tonight. And this uh, person says, Why aren't you running for president?
0: (laughs) If I were, you'd hate me the minute I declare. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all so much. What a wonderful evening.